Welcome once again to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast with me, Ivan Mawaride. I'm enjoying talking to the different people on our podcast. As a democracy activist myself who was jailed in Zimbabwe and tortured and threatened with all sorts of things for speaking up for the well-being and welfare of people, it has become amazing to hear the stories of people in other regions who are fighting the same struggles and even deeper struggles. And not only that, but it's become amazing to, to hear their journeys, to hear what gives them hope. And even though what we hear sometimes is distressing, it's important that we we hear it. It's important that we learn it because if it's happening in another part of the world, it doesn't mean that it's, it's divorced from us. It's part of us. And in many cases, a lot of people don't understand that knowing someone else's struggle and in some way, shape or form, supporting that struggle, even just by retelling the story to someone else, helps immensely. Today, I'm I'm talking to somebody who has firsthand experience of probably one of the most horrendous human rights abuses that is taking place in our world today. She was born in this particular region that we will talk about. But more than that, she's taken up the fight to help. She's taken up the fight to bring dignity back to her people. I'm talking today to Zubaira Shamzeden, who is an amazing woman who has served in so many capacities, but at the moment serves as the Chinese outreach coordinator for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. She's also the vice president of the World Uyghur Congress and has held many other positions to not just help Uyghur people, but to bring to attention the gross abuses of the Chinese government. Zubaira, thank you so much for being with us here on the front lines of freedom and coming to tell us not just your story, but bringing us into the world of understanding what you and the Uyghur people are involved in. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to talking to you today. Now, one of the things that I learned about you is that you were born in East Turkestan. And many people know it as the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, but it, it really is called East Turkestan. That's its original name. I want you to take us back to when you were a child growing up in East Turkestan. What was it like? What do you remember of that time? I spent my child like um, just learning, observing, and to see the differences of what, you know, the treatment that my people are facing in this land that we call it East Turkestan, or Chinese government call it um, Xinjiang, which is literal meaning of Xinjiang, which is Chinese language, is new territory. But we call it East Turkestan because that homeland's name is East Turkestan. And the majority population of that land is Uyghur population and other Turkic people like um Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Tatars, Kyrgyz, Tajik. Um, but the majority population of the region is Uyghurs. Um, we call it East Turkestan because the Uyghurs established two independent countries in history, I mean, in recent history. So I don't really wish to go back to whole history talking about what's my region, why we end up calling it East Turkestan. Just briefly, the Chinese Communist government invaded East Turkestan in 1949 illegally with deception. But definitely with the Russian, with the help of Russian communists. After the invasion, Chinese governments during the time of consolidating power, uh, they have promised Uyghurs an autonomous region. So the Uyghurs believed the Chinese communist government and um, the Chinese communist government changed the name of East Turkestan 
to Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in 1955. Just before that, which is from 1944 until 1947, there was East Turkestan Republic established already in the region. The Chinese government, with the assistance of Russian Communist government, um, the two、uh, governing system came to an agreement saying that the Chinese will offer full autonomy to people of the region, so that the Uyghurs believe that、um, that autonomy will be genuine. So they have accepted, and that's how we end up leaving so-called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region or Xinjiang, which is a new territory of the Chinese government. When I was little. Especially the town that I was born. I think the、um, the influence. I would. I can say that now. I kind of remember that the influence, the feeling of still being independent, is still there. Definitely, our people were living under pressure, suppression, and crackdown. People were so scared. You know, very fearful of saying anything. Especially soon after the occupation of East Turkestan, the Chinese government's crackdown against Uyghurs was very harsh. You know, they start with the rich people. The first, they get rid of all Uyghur rich people with so-called land reform policy of China, and the second attack was、um, the intellectuals, intellectuals Uyghurs, and also at the same time、uh, they get rid of lots of people who involved in establishing East Turkestan Republic as well. That particular history is directly connects to my town, the Gulja city, which is at that time designated as the capital city of East Turkestan Republic. So, with that heavy crackdown, the people are already、um, very suppressed and very fearful to speak out、uh, about what's happening to our people. And even speaking out or saying East Turkestan was illegal at that time already. You know, if the East Turkestan was kind of the name that the Vigors admire and wish to, you know, restore and、um, happen one day, but it's kind of banned language to you can speak out or say it. That's how I grew up.、Um, and also because of that situation, and you know, the, the Chinese crackdown is not that kind of simple. It is systematic. It is detailed and it is targeted. For me, from a family、uh, that the Chinese government designate as a anti-communist or you know the landlord, the intellectual that the Chinese government doesn't like, you know, especially the religious intellectual. And our family was targeted from that time. So the, our family was target of for, target of for Chinese government to promote among Uyghurs that you know we should be kind of isolated. So the propaganda, the pressure was so much. You know that pressure is not only comes from the Chinese government directly, and also from the population as well. The Chinese government forcing the to force those people to do the things against us or people like us. You know that kind of family background. Tell me, Zubaira, I'm listening. You know, and I know that those who will listen to this will will have this question, which is. What is it exactly that the Chinese government has against the Uyghur people? What, what are they? I don't know whether to say afraid of, or what do they hate, or what do they dislike about your people that they first of all have taken your land and then have put them through the kinds of abuses that they are being put through right now, which we shall talk about soon. The number one. 
The Chinese government thinks that the East Turkestan is part of China from ancient times. That's what Chinese governments believe, I mean, Chinese governments claim, and that's what Chinese government want Uyghurs and all East Turkestan native people to believe in, saying that we belong to China, we are part of China, we are part of Chinese culture, and we are part of one of them. But Uyghurs reject that claim and reject that identity, saying that, no, we not belong to you. Our land is occupied by you and it's illegal. Then that, that's number one reason. And the second reason is we are Uyghur people. We are completely from Han Chinese, which is majority population of mainland China. And also the Chinese Communist Party, which is, again, consists of the Han Chinese people. It's a majority population of Han Chinese. The Han Chinese culture and the Uyghur culture is completely different. We are completely different people. Number one, we belong to uh, Turkic roots. Our languages belong to Turkic language system. And secondly, we speak in completely different language. Han Chinese speaks in Chinese language. It's a Mandarin Chinese. That's the main language. And we speak in Uyghur language, which is Turkic root. And secondly, we believe in religion. We believe in God. We believe in Allah. Because most of the Uyghur people are the Muslims right now. But in history, Uyghurs believe in many religions. That includes Buddhism, Shamanism, Christianity. But Uyghurs converted and accept Islam in 8th century. So now majority Uyghurs are Muslims. They believe in Islam. That second, I mean, number one is identity as a Uyghur speaking Uyghur is that the Chinese government doesn't like. The second religion is the Chinese government the most hate because the Chinese government, the communist government, the atheist government, they, they, don't, they don't believe in any faith, any religion. The Chinese government claims that the CCP is the God or CCP is the faith for people. The people should only follow whatever CCP or Chinese Communist Party say to them. That's second, the biggest contradictory thing or kind of hate thing that the because majority population of East Turkestan is believing God. The third, our culture, again, it's very different. You know, tradition, culture is completely different from Chinese tradition and the culture, way of living as well. So that differences, the Chinese government is very intolerant. They just don't like and they try to change Uyghurs, change, assimilate them into completely into Chinese culture. So we become one of them. So they feel safe, they feel secure. And the most importantly, also, uh, also the Chinese government thinks the Uyghurs are the security threat for Chinese government because of the strategic uh, resource and important status and the location of East Turkestan. Your family, you said just now that your family became pretty much an enemy of the Chinese government. And much later, at some point in your life, as you grew up, you then left and was based in Australia. What did your your work look like? How did you begin to kind of engage yourself? Was that when you began to engage yourself in speaking up for the Uyghurs? I read something that was a quote in an interview that you did, and it said, I am Zubaira Shamsuddin. I am a Uyghur. And my duty is to be a voice for all the voiceless people in my country. And it's such a powerful, resolute statement. When did you, did you make that decision that this is going to be, this is going to be something I devote my life to? When I started my work as an, as the Academy of Science of China in East Turkestan, because, um, soon I complete my university, I was allocated to work in Academy Science of China, Xinjiang branch, which is definitely in East Turkestan. Soon I started my work. It was very prestigious, but 
I realized that the key problem, the key issue that we face, it's not something that we can change through academic career, through dialogue or through education or through some kind of um, you know, hard work. The key reason, the main purpose of Chinese government is not nothing to do with academy. It's nothing to do with ed- education. It's just to purposefully completely assimilate Uyghurs into Chinese culture, just get rid of them. Because they don't really, the Chinese system didn't really kind of see the real peace uh, comes from kind of understanding support and the respect. The Chinese authority keeps saying that oh, we have to promote the, the unity and we have to live in a harmonious society, and that's what we are, and that's what Uyghurs are doing. But in reality, we, we, we never had any harmonious society in East Turkestan with China. And we never had kind of unity. They keep promoting, keep saying it, but we, we never were united with them. Because how you can be united if they don't respect you, if they don't respect your rights, your beliefs, the, even your own constitution, you know, the Chinese government's constitution, that there are lots of rights that the Chinese government offered to Uyghurs, but they never implemented that. And we, we didn't have any rights. Like, for, for example, simply, while I was working, I said, you know, I was completely later labeled as a nationalist just simply because in one meeting saying that why the policy, the academic policy, all the policies that you are implementing here in East Turkestan, in academy science, in here, is different from what you do in mainland China, in Shanghai. And since you say that East Turkestan or Xinjiang is part of China from ancient times, why the old treatment, the regulations, rules, and even conducting your work is so different from mainland China? In reality, the government is separating the region from mainland China, separating from people to people, you know, just simply because they're treating differently. And that treatment is enforced with the policy and the formalization, the real kind of policy. They they completely just legitimized all the repression against the Uyghurs. So whatever they do against Uyghurs was legal. Anyway, it was very simple conversation with authority at the times. And I realized that it's so hard and it's very difficult. And there are also few, very many people to speak out because of the repression and because of the disappearance. Just like yourself, you know, you were simply jailed for so many years, just simply speaking out, speak the truth, and being the voice of kind of voiceless, voiceless people. And that was exactly the situation in East Turkestan as well. Whoever speaks out, like myself or anyone else, and they either get jailed or arrested or just simply disappeared. And that was that. What I have witnessed that happened to in my family, I mean, to my relatives. And I remember one of my uncles spent 13 years in a jail as a political prisoner. And right now my brother is still in jail he, since 1998. It's over, it's 25 years now. I mean, the most of those people who very simple, ordinary Uyghurs, you know, their demand, whatever they have done is just very uh, ordinary. And it's not against the Chinese law. Very simple demand, either religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, just to live like Uyghurs, you know, be free to live like Uyghurs. We're not allowed. That's why. And I thought that it's very difficult for me to continue to speak out, do something, because I don't get any result anyway. Um, you know, you'll just be disappeared. That means you just cut off what you want to do. And that's why I didn't see my future in my country. So I fled. Soon I fled. That was that. That's how I felt. It's my duty. If I don't speak out, who would?
Your brother, just thinking about this, you said he's been in jail, in prison since 1998. That is a long time. And I suppose the realization I'm having is that there is very little choice that you then have as someone who finds their way into a free place or into a free society. Your journey is, I mean, you could ignore it if, if you wanted to, but I just don't, it's just something that I know that, you know, for you, you, you suddenly realize that, okay, I'm the one that got away. So my job is to speak up on behalf of those who are, who are still there. You mentioned something just now. You said the Chinese government has continues to try to assimilate and to get rid of the Uyghurs. And we've learned now that what is happening in East Turkestan is really a genocide. And I want you to walk walk us through this genocide and the different forms that it has taken. Because sometimes when people think of a genocide, they're thinking of, for example, what happened in Rwanda in 1995, where people are going around with matchets and physically hacking a people group to death. And And sometimes people don't understand that this happens in other forms. And I want you to walk us through how this genocide is taking place in East Turkestan right now. I perfectly understand. And this is just a great description. You just, what you just said, like saying that the genocide has different forms. It's not just as simply you take a weapon and kill them all, or you put all the people in the gas chamber just to burn them all. This is one another form of genocide. But there are other forms of genocide as well, which is what Uyghurs are facing right now. Um, as I told you before, the Chinese government's policy against the Uyghurs or get rid of Uyghurs is it's not something that happened just yesterday or since 2016. But at that time, it, it got worse, you know, from 2016. They got extreme form, which is the genocide really kind of took place openly, I can say. Um, before that, as I told you before, the authority attacked on our language. That was the number one. And that attacking on languages also start with so-called implementing bilingual policy, bilingual education policy. But in reality, they were completely promoting monolingual, which is Han Chinese education. So with that, they get rid of the Uyghur, use of Uyghur language from formal you know, educational system completely. And slowly made it just kind of home language, you know, you can speak at home. But the later that also tried to completely get rid of the language from not only just at home, the whole social settings everywhere as well, you know, through monitoring, saying that whoever speaks in Uyghur language, they get punished. Like, you know, they put kids to spy on the parents, you know, that they have to spy on parents, whether they are speaking in Uyghur, practicing religion, uh, fasting during the month of Ramadan, or doing all cultural events, like, for example, you know, celebrating religious events. Wait, you're saying that they'd use your, your children to spy on you? Exactly. They, that's what they did. That's what Chinese government did. The kids had to report to the school saying that, yes, my parents are practicing religion. My parents are speaking in, in Uyghur. And through that, they put pressure on the family saying, that, why did you do it? And this was so meticulously and the details. And they allocated people. Later, they allocated thousands, hundreds of the Chinese communist officials to live with Uyghur families to monitor everything in you know, the top of what child children does. You're telling me that they 
would allocate a stranger to live with the family to monitor yes that's what they did there's no way are you serious yes that's what they did and they call it becoming a relative that's the policy of china's government you know that say that you have to become relative and they allocate atheist non-believer chinese officials to live in Uyghur families and the most of the situation you know the male Uyghur person will either sent to concentration camps or labor camps but in the family only only female and the children are left and those officials and they have another policy saying that live together sleep together eat together so they had to do everything together imagine you know they had to sleep on your bed without your permission they have to eat your food without your permission they have to monitor you 24/7 without your permission and if you stay against her and they threaten that they're going to send you to concentration camps so if you're male or if you are not compliant you were sent off to a concentration camp walk us through a concentration camp in east turkestan the concentration camp that's the exact place where genocide is taking place and according to camp survivors which i have done so many translations Uh, the campus in reality it is just a grand you know big the grand of genocide what has happened there is number one they detained people in overcrowded condition and there is no hygiene in the camps and there is so called reeducation in reality it's brainwashing people brainwashing education and people to uh, deny you know give up their religion and they have to give up their believing god saying that we don't believe in god we only believe in chinese communist party and chinese communist party is our god xi jinping is our god and chinese communist party is our savior in a kind of brainwashing educations top of that there is torture rape sterilization abortion if any woman is pregnant and um they also undergo different types of medical examinations you know blood tests voice tests and also in the, also they cut their hair and they shaved the old detainees hair as well and also different level of monitoring each um detainee and also there is no privacy at all you know the the the, the cells the places where the women detained because i'm just talking about the women because that's what i have in person personally directly talked to with the camp survivors you know the, the in the camera the four corners are you know there are cameras you know in cells the the, the authority can monitor you whether you even go to toilet and taking a shower it's, everything is just watched due to overcrowded condition and the people when they want to sleep they had to take a turn you know half of the people had to stand up and half the half of the people can lie down and that lie down also kind of they had to take a turn you know in every 2 hours and also they select You know, one person to monitor within the cell as well if within the cell if anyone um stands qu- quietly quite a long time like that they think that that person may be praying inside so that person get punished and if a person cries l- loudly you know keep tears flow and they also suspect that that person might be sad about the condition and even if they did overwash like i mean they everything is limited but still if they wash 
kind of private places in Wuhan states suspect that they may take in wudu, you know, the cleansing for prayer, and they also get punished as well. It's, I mean, I'm just telling you the very little details, but there are so much. It's just a horrific. Zubaira, um, the question I'm actually wanting to ask you with what you're telling me, are you telling me what was happening many years ago, or are you telling me what's happening right now? Right now. Since 2016, since Chinese government built concentration camps specifically for the Uyghurs. Forced sterilization. I've personally never heard of, of that kind of, a, of an attempt to wipe out a people. And you're telling me that this has been happening and is happening right now on a systematic basis and approach. Zubera, you, you just told me something that is incredibly horrific. I have no words to describe how evil, how cruel the things you've just said are. And I'm trying to understand how how this is something that the world is not noticing or not paying attention to. Exactly. I mean, that's what we have been telling the world since I left from the country in 1993, that especially the forced sterilization and abortion was exists at that time. Just as simply, there wasn't concentration camps yet since um, I, I left from the country in 1993. The forced abortion and the forced sterilization was exist at the times as well. I mean, there are reports about it um, by the Amnesty International. Even Uyghur Human Rights Project produced one report in, from my memory, I think 2007 or something, about you know forced abortion and the forced sterilization sterilization of Uyghur women and also forced transfer transfer of young Uyghur women like age between 18 to 25 to mainland China to work in the factories and try to kind of stop having more children because it, it, that's marriage age you know the, for the girls to exactly the marriage age girls who collected gathered and sent to labor camps in mainland China that happened from long ago as well it was it was exist and the top of that the china's so-called one child policy was harshly implemented on the Uyghurs. Yes, it was exist not only just to uh, East Turkestan, it was exist whole China. And the whole China was run by the one-child policy, but it was that implementation was much harsher against the Uyghurs. I remember um, not only just a report, even I have learned in my neighborhood, you know, there was a woman whose child was aborted when she was seven months pregnant already, almost having a baby. Yeah, seven months pregnant. And also some ladies were... The babies were killed at the hospital. You know, many women, they are, they are reluctant to go to hospital and give birth just because of they afraid that government would kill the babies. And that happened. That happened quite commonly while I was in East Turkestan. And especially, you know, you know, the Chinese government say that Uyghurs can have two child. But if anyone get pregnant for third one or yet and didn't want to, you know, kill them or abort them, but the authority would forcibly abort those babies. After abortion, they forcibly sterilize women. And that's that's all just a kind of forcible actions. It's not something volunteer for women to choose to not have child, have child, or have sterilization or not have... It, was, it wasn't voluntary at all. It was forced. Like even one of my cousins was sterilized without her knowledge that she was in my age. After her third child, but third child were allowed because of she paid a huge fine, and you have to pay fine otherwise. But after she had her third child, she was sterilized, but she didn't know. She realized later she was sterilized. How? Tell me how how did how how did they do it without without one knowing? 
they forcibly put you into car. It's authority in the neighborhood watch car and take you to the hospital. They do everything they want. They don't care. The woman, you know, whole Uyghurs, they are just kind of experiment for the Chinese government. I'm honestly shocked hearing what you're telling me. Now, in recent months, some protests broke out in China and they spread in different parts of China. But my understanding was that the trigger, part of it was in the Uyghur labor camps. Some people there had had enough and just began to protest against the treatment. Could you walk us through the labor camps and how some of the products that people consume in the West, in the free world, are actually being manufactured in labor camps in China? As you know, since China's government built concentration camps for Uyghurs, um, there were two to three million Uyghurs who were detained in the camps. And the later, because of the international pressure, even United Nations pressure, and the Chinese government suddenly announced that they have closed so-called re-education camps or concentration camps. But in reality, many people from the camps were either sent to labor camps in mainland China, transferred to factories, or sent to long-term prison sentence. And there are reports already, Adrian Zan's reported, many uh, Australian Strategic Institute reported about it, and there are many reports already, probably you have read it. And those people who transferred to labor camps in mainland China, they definitely produce products that may directly relate to our consuming stuff in here, in the United States, anywhere in the world, probably. For example, cotton products. The, the cotton products are, you know, the China export to the world is the, almost all of them is made in East Turkestan, produced by Uyghur slavery. So that's one simple thing. Like, for example, tomato, you know, some farmland products like the tomatoes and many other products. And also um, the solar panels, 100%, it's from East Turkestan. Again, it definitely involved in Uyghur forced labor force as well. I mean, I don't know what the, the, the breakout of people's protests, but the Uyghurs are heavily swayed all the time, controlled and watched, even if they are allocated to work in the factories. Um, according to some the workers, you know, Uyghur workers or research documents, the Uyghurs doesn't have freedom to move around themselves. And they, were, they are always controlled, you know, going to the work, coming back to work, staying in the dormitory, wherever they go, they are monitored 24-7. So it's, it's just like a slavery, you know, it's no freedom, nothing. And they work there for free or for very little pay. I read on something some months ago, which was talking about the collection of uh, the DNA of the Uyghur people and putting it into a database. What is that about? This is another way of control and trying to, even they do facial recognition, voice recognition, all of the high-tech surveillance against Uyghurs. I mean, they, that's what they have done. DNA collection also existed from a long time ago. You know, even while I was in East Turkestan, a bit later, even if people are applying for passport, Uyghurs particularly, they had to go through all, you know, DNA check, blood check, all checks. And now, not later, the research, all the documentation showed that this is not something simple. It was kind of data collection. It's a DNA collection, you know, the, your blood sample collection. They could use for, definitely for, they use for monitoring, control. Secondly, organ harvesting, 
that's another issue that happening to Uyghurs as well. The, the, as you know, the China is one of the top uh, organ export, organ selling country, and those checks are also used for harvesting organs of the Uyghur prisoners. It could be concentration camp detainees, just anyone, any Uyghurs. So the, if you you can say that you know it's the, it's just a simply a genocide ground in East Turkestan for Uyghurs. It's in many ways either by Hosting your organ or DNA match could be used for that one as well. Then it's easy to easy to find matched uh, body organs, so it can be just transferred or transplanted quickly. Uh, that's what one of the findings that in terms of DNA collection and also uh, another key part I forgot is forcing Uyghurs to marry Han Chinese. That's another big issue again in order to terminate growth of the Uyghur population. So all of them, you know, if you collect to say that in order to uh, get rid of Uyghurs, all the things is it's no, it's it is kind of big assault and it's no less than just killing you, killing you with the weapon because Imagine uh, with sterilizing if there are no Uyghur babies born, that means normal population. The, the top of that, if they force Uyghur women to marry Han Chinese, again, the child born won't be pure Uyghur. And also, at the same time, the Chinese authorities sending Uyghurs to concentration camps, you know, both parents sent, and then they took Uyghur babies, children to government orphanages, a government so-called boarding school. And in that boarding school, they completely isolate Uyghurs from Uyghur environment, Uyghur culture, Uyghur family, and they educate them 100% Chinese education, Chinese language, Chinese culture. Everything is Chinese. Imagine what's going to happen to those kids. So that means it's double sword. It's many ways of killing people. I want to focus as we come to the close of our talk today on your work at the Uyghur Human Rights Project and the World Uyghur Congress. Tell me about what you are achieving, some of the things that you uh, have done, are doing, some of the successes you've had in advocating or at least speak up, or maybe it's even rescuing people that have escaped from concentration camps and escaped the brutality. So far for me, the Uyghur Human Rights Project is doing great in documenting the atrocities that happened to Uyghurs for so many years. I mean, right now, it is kind of first-hand document, and especially it's, it is the document that written from the Uyghurs' perspective, and this is organization led by Uyghurs, and also research done professionally and with high standard. So with that, we have all the documentations about the atrocities that are happening to Uyghurs. That's what I believe that this is a big achievement of Uyghur Human Rights Project. At the same time, the advocacy work, the advocacy is not only just within the United States, it's worldwide, like United Nations, NGOs, everywhere. And that's what Uyghur Human Rights Project is doing as well as World Uyghur Congress. World Uyghur Congress is the same, doing the same advocacy work. But in terms of research, the Uyghur Human Rights Project is a stronger, stronger part. That's key advantage and key achievement of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. But in terms of advocacy, World Uyghur Congress is doing great. But as you just mentioned, helping camp survivors, you know, if, I mean, there are very few who were able to out from East Turkestan because of the travel restrictions against the Uyghurs, and there is no freedom of travel or freedom of getting passports and the leave from East Turkestan because it's, the region is completely controlled by the Chinese, but still we have some people who are able to escape or escaped before and unable to go back to our country due to fear that they could directly get sent to the concentration camps or disappear from airports. And 
so that kind of works all done by World Uyghur Congress as well. They are just 24-7 all the time monitoring what's happening to the region as well as the world and try their best to let the world know and tell the world, the community, internationals, they take it seriously, God's sake. Because it is real. It is not something story. It is not something just to fantasy. It is real. It is happening. And whatever we say is not only just backed by the Uyghur Human Rights Project's documentation, it is backed by the many academic researchers, NGOs, observers, even United Nations produce re- report about what's happening to Uyghurs. And they said that it is whatever Chinese government is doing against Uyghurs is may constitute crime against humanity and its atrocity crimes. And even United States already designate that what's happening to Uyghurs is a genocide. And a few parliament, you know, 11 parliaments already agreed and kind of produced similar resolutions saying that this is genocide. So it is genocide. It is not that simple. And it is not, um, as I told you before, we are life witnesses to I am, and like myself, there are hundreds, thousands of Uyghurs who can testify the atrocities that are happening to those people now. Zubaira, there is so much to take in from what you have told us today, and it's it's only a tip of the iceberg. I know that, you know, because there is so much happening, and sometimes we we spend time talking about it as we've done, but there there are people's lives that have been taken away, uh, people who've been in prison for years and years. There are people that have been abused, murdered, that we will never know about. And yet I want to to say that everything you do today is in memory and is for those people, is for those voices. And that statement that I read from that interview you took some time ago, it grabbed me when I read it because it, it was, it, it represents for me a statement of purpose, of intent. And so I want to thank you for being with us today, for not just talking to us, but for devoting your life in all its forms, devoting your the, the time you have, the, the time that is supposed to be for your family, devoting, risking your life to speaking up, to being a voice, to being a representative, to, to being a rescuer. Thank you for doing that. And, and thank you. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you. Because we are in the free world, but yeah, it is great as you just the first mentioned that you could choose to live whatever you want to do in this world, you know, because we're in the free world. But unfortunately, we don't really enjoy because I feel the suffer every day, every minute of my life. Whenever I do, I connect that to back home, whatever I do. Like when I see the smile of my child, I think of those orphanage children back home who took away without parents' permission, without relatives' permission, put in, forcibly put in dormitories, concentration camps, so-called boarding schools, and took off the freedom, being a child, smiling at their parents, just living in the family. This is horrific, and this is atrocity. So I feel that every day. I mean, I feel it is my duty, and I feel not only just to simply because of I'm a vagrant for anybody who ever suffers like that and it's our duty as a human beings. I hope that you have heard something that has brought into perspective the value of the freedom that you have if you live in the free world. But also, I hope you've heard something that has brought into perspective an understanding of what it means to to devote your life to something that changes someone else's life. And that's what Zubaira represents for me. Somebody who takes up a duty and says, this is what I shall devote my life 
true and that every little step every little action whether it's a meeting with a policymaker here whether it is the recording of what is happening first hand information all of that it may be small but it makes a difference and i hope that you find something small to do for somebody that needs someone to fight on their behalf thanks for listening and being with us on the front lines of freedom as usual please share this with someone else and we'll see you again next time bye bye 